remain standing, take up your copy of the Word if you have it with you, or your phone, or however you bring the Word into the Lord's house, and turn with me, if you will, to Paul's letter to the Philippians in the New Testament, and read with me the Word of God, verses 1 through 6. Philippians chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all, with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, We are thankful for your perfect sovereign care and preservation of the scriptures, and we thank you for this epistle of joy written to a particular church some 2,000 years ago, but just as living and fresh and needful for the church today as it was when it was originally delivered to the saints in Philippi. We pray and ask for your blessing to be upon us as we turn now to this letter And that you would be pleased to equip and build us up and make us a more joyful people in the church as we read and consider that which is written. And sanctify us, O Lord, as we heed the exhortations that are delivered. This we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. You may be seated. The epistle to the Philippians accomplishes in four short chapters an amazing variety of purposes. This this letter instructs, it warns, admonishes, thanks, and encourages the church. It provides us with an opportunity to walk alongside the Apostle Paul and learn from him through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit how he thinks how he feels, and how he conducts his life. It expresses a deep-seated joy even in the midst of spiritual opposition and physical challenges. Most of all, most of all, it directs us repeatedly to the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I begin this morning a new series preaching through Paul's letter to the Philippians, I would like to begin looking at the background that we may know from the biblical record the establishment of the church of Philippi. And as we do this, it will be helpful to be aware of the context in which Paul is writing the letter. And for those of you who are biblical scholars and know all of this, bear with it and receive it afresh. We have, we have new believers. We have children in our midst, and they're walking along with us and entering into the story that God is writing here. And it's a glorious story. And then after we have reviewed some of the background to the letter, we will then consider those six short verses in our text before us in three points. 
which are already outlined for you in the title of the message. The greeting, Paul's gratitude, and his confidence in the gospel. So let's take a moment now and and look at the background to this letter. And if you want to follow along with me, go ahead and turn in your Bible to to Acts chapter 16. I'll kind of be walking through that and, and reviewing how the church at Philippi was established. The story of the planting of the church at Philippi is found in Acts 16. You may remember in your reading of Scripture that Paul and Silas were on their second missionary journey visiting some of the churches that had been planted in Asia Minor, churches in Derby, Lystra, and Iconium, those, those throughout the region of Galatia. It was on this first part of the journey that Paul met Timothy, a disciple of the Lord Jesus, well spoken of by the brethren who are at Lystra and Iconium. Timothy joins Paul on the missionary journey, and the intention was to continue on the journey into Asia proper and preach there. Perhaps visiting the seven churches we read about in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, Laodicea, Philadelphia, Ephesus, Pergamon, etc. But as they came to Asia in the region of Phrygia, Scripture tells us that they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. So... Obediently, they continue bypassing those opportunities in Asia. Obediently, they continue bypassing them and continue until they reach the region known as Mysia. And there they try to go up north into Bithynia, which is on the southern border of the Black Sea. And as an aside, for those of you who follow the news in the last week or so, you will likely know that a Russian fighter jet encountered and collided with a U.S. drone, causing the drone to crash into the Black Sea. So perhaps that will help us with a bit of contemporary connection to know what part of the world Paul and Silas were traveling at that time. But once again, once again, the Holy Spirit did not permit them to go up into Bithynia. They continued on through Mysia all the way to the western coastal city of Troas. And at Troas, the scripture tells us, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. And so, in perfect accord with Proverbs 16.9, which tells us, a man's heart plans his way. But the Lord directs his steps. Paul and Silas were diligent to make plans for where they wanted to go, you see. But our plans are not always God's plans. And so they were directed out of Asia, into Macedonia, out of the region of modern-day Turkey, and into Europe, and what we know as the northeastern part of Greece. And this is a good reminder for us that faithful Planning requires of us to humbly seek the Lord's will throughout. We make plans. Maybe we even start executing those plans. And we step out in faith, and this is good and well. But we do so in all humility, being willing to yield to the leading of the Holy Spirit. As the missionary contingent make their way to Philippi, we have a record of the first European convert. And so on the Sabbath day, when they 
went out of the city proper and to the riverside, a place where prayer was customarily made. And they sat down and they spoke to the women gathered there. They preached the gospel. And Lydia, a seller of purple, heard the good news and the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. Salvation had come by the hearing and the preaching of God's word, brought by God's man through an unplanned and twice diverted route. And so Lydia, along with her household, were baptized. As we see the beginning of the church in Philippi, we are reminded of two important principles that we always need to keep before us. First, Jesus has to build his church. What we want, what we think is best, is not always what the Lord wants. He told Paul and Silas, no, not there. I want you to go there. And second, in desiring for churches to be established and in wanting the churches to grow, those desires are completely dependent upon the power of Almighty God. You see, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised. God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are so that no flesh should glory in his presence. God chose men who called themselves slaves, bondservants of Jesus Christ to carry and deliver his word. And wherever we find the word faithfully proclaimed and the church beginning to flourish, we should not be surprised to also find the enemy redoubling his efforts to thwart and undermine God's handiwork. And that's exactly what we find here at Philippi. Not long after Lydia's conversion, Paul encounters a slave girl who was possessed by a spirit of divination. Her masters were using this spirit as a means of profit by way of her fortune-telling. She is the goose that lays the golden egg, so to speak. Well, it's not long before the girl starts following Paul and those who are with him, and she begins crying out, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And she continued doing this for many days. Let's note something important here. Were the words the girl was saying by the way of the spirit of divination true? Were they true? They were, yes. But this is not the way the gospel is to be affirmed and promoted. God uses clean vessels. And he is the one who washes them clean. But the girl... And the spirit of divination who possessed her are both unclean. And Paul is righteously annoyed by this. And so he turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And the spirit came out of her that very hour. Well, as you can easily imagine, the girl's masters were pretty upset by this turn of events. No more spirit of divination. And so... No more fortune-telling. No more fortune-telling, and so no more easy profit. The golden goose would no longer lay any golden eggs, so it is no surprise that these unscrupulous 
men seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the Roman authorities and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city, and they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive and observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods, and when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet into the stocks. Sounds eerily familiar these days. God's men, Paul, Silas, and are now naked, beaten, and bloody. They're chained up in a Philippian prison under constant watch. The enemy has made his move and thwarted God's plan, right? Well, let's not be too hasty in that assessment. And let's also don't lose sight of the picture. Bloody, beaten, and naked, chained up in a prison, a guard keeping watch. No doubt these men are exhausted and hungry and in great pain. Paul and Silas are surrounded by other prisoners as well, some of whom were likely not the most pleasant people to be around. And what do Paul and Silas do in this situation? They pray. And they sing hymns to God. And what are the other prisoners doing while this is going on? They are listening to these men. And then, then by the great providential hand of God, a mighty earthquake shakes the foundation of the prison, and all the prisoners are loosed from their chains, and the doors to their cells fly open. The Philippian jailer is alerted, and seeing all the open cell doors, he immediately assumes what any, anyone would, and that is that all the prisoners have escaped. In utter despair, he draws his sword to fall upon it rather than face the shame and punishment for his failure as a guard. But Paul calls out with a loud voice saying, Do no harm, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. The testimony of Paul and Silas and of all the prisoners not escaping was a powerful one. And the jailer asked the most important question of his life at that point. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? <coughs> the jailer had heard their singing. He has heard their praising. He has heard their prayers. And the scene before him is beyond anything that he could imagine. And he wants, he desires, he is drawn to whatever it is that they have. And so he receives the answer to his question. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. The jailer takes them to his home and they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he washes the prisoner's wounds and then he and all his family were baptized. And what happens next? They all sit down together, and they eat together. And the jailer rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. And it's a beautiful scene. Do you see 
the handiwork of the Lord here. The joy, the joy of the Lord in this, this picture, this accounting, flows like rivers of fresh water. It flowed through the prayers and the hymns of Paul and Silas. It flowed in the hopeless circumstances of chains, and it flowed in the depths of their bodily pain. And it flowed into the heart of the Philippian jailer and his whole household. Joy is established in the very DNA of the Philippian church. It's just a beautiful scene. And then you continue reading chapter 16, you see that that they just want to let Paul and Silas go, but Paul then claims his Roman citizenship and demands that the magistrates come, and they ultimately let him go. But do you see what happens at the very end of chapter 16? So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. They already had a place of hospitality among their brothers and sisters there in Philippi, beginning right there in Lydia's home. And this brings us to the letter that Paul wrote to the Philippian church in his opening greeting. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the bishops and the deacons there, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul writes this letter, he does so while in custody in Rome, awaiting his appeal to Caesar. This letter, along with those to the Ephesians and Colossians and to Philemon, are therefore often referred to as the prison epistles. When Paul wrote this letter, perhaps about a dozen years after the events we just read about in Acts 16, some who heard it read aloud there for the very first time had probably lived through these earth-shaking events, literally. And we are tempted to ask some very natural questions, are we not? I wonder, I wonder if Lydia was still hosting the church in her home, as she did at first. Was the jailer there in the congregation with his family, recalling Paul's bleeding back as the words in verses 29 and 30 here in chapter 1 were read? For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but to also suffer for His sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. Was he replaying in his mind the missionary's surprising songs in the night as he heard this new report of Paul's current chains and contagious joy? Could the slave girl have been there? in her right mind, set free by the name of Jesus, to whom every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Were there Roman citizens who had once praised the emperor as Lord and Savior, but who now rejoiced in a higher citizenship and awaited a greater Savior and Lord? For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Wouldn't you like to know the answer to those questions? 
And wouldn't it be marvelous to break bread with those saints and to have praise-filled conversations, hearing what great things the Lord has done? We might not be able to do that. But we can sit down with one another and have such conversations. We can visit our brothers and sisters in other churches and sit down and break bread and have those conversations if only we learn to remember and recount the marvelous deeds of our Lord. You see, Paul had a deep affection for this church in Philippi. The letter is laced with terms of endearment and expressions of longing for reunion with his friends, to whom Paul says, I have you in my heart. How greatly I long for you with the affection of Jesus Christ, and whom he calls my beloved and my longed-for brethren, my crown and joy. On the other hand, the members of the Philippian church would also be aware that their congregation had problems, like every congregation. One sin which Paul will address later in the letter was a subtle self-centeredness that showed itself in competing priorities and interpersonal frictions. He keeps returning to this concern in the letter. Chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 He writes, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. In chapter 2, 14 and 15, he writes, Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom... You shine as lights in the world. And just one more. Chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. I implore, I beseech Euodia, and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help those women who labored with me in the gospel. Such rivalries and misunderstandings undermine the Philippians' unity at the very time when external pressure from persecution made it all the more important that they be of one accord and of one mind. Although the physical threat of suffering and the spiritual threats of Judaizing legalism are also mentioned in the book, and lawless sensuality and lurked in the background, the frictions and fissures that divided these believers weighed most heavily on Paul's heart. Put simply, the members of this otherwise wonderful church were not jumping for joy at the prospect of being slaves, which is precisely the way that Paul characterized himself along with Timothy. Slaves, after all, had to do what other people wanted. Slaves had to submit their personal preferences, opinions, convenience, schedules, even their physical health and safety to the agenda and whims of their masters. Who would volunteer for such a powerless position unless compelled by a force or economic necessity. Later in this letter, Paul will explicitly correct the Philippian self-centeredness. In these opening sentences, however, in this opening to this letter, he takes a very gentle approach, sensitive to the subject of their resistance to the calling of slaves. He presents himself, along with Timothy, as men who have found freedom in being slaves, captivated by Christ. Then he gives reasons to believe that becoming Christ's slave is the road 
to everlasting joy. Paul makes these points by mentioning one name three times in these two verses. Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ. This threefold repetition foreshadows how thoroughly Paul will extol Christ as the only theme worth preaching, the only master worth honoring, and the only cause to make life worth live, living and death worth dying. To each mention of Jesus' name, Paul attaches a distinctive phrase. First, bondservants of Christ Jesus. Second, saints in Christ Jesus, and then finally, grace and peace from the Lord Jesus Christ. These three phrases are keys that unlock the mystery of how Paul and Timothy could find joy in being captivated as Christ's slaves and how we can experience that same joy. Bond servants of Christ Jesus. The epistle's opening verses express Paul's first point, which is true joy is found in complete submission to King Jesus as his bondservants. The Philippians needed to see illustrated in the lives of Paul and Timothy the counterintuitive truth that these men bear God's authority because Christ has captivated them as his slaves. Paul and Timothy are living proof that those whom Jesus saves, he enslaves. In their self-centered preoccupations and competing agendas, Paul's Philippian brothers and sisters need to see what joyful slavery looks like, up close and personal. They also needed to face the fact that every master other than Jesus will exploit and disappoint in the end. Not all are as obvious as the evil spirit that had seized the Philippian slave girl and forced words out of her mouth. Not all are as blatant as the slave girl's owners who treated her as money-making piece of property. But every master, every single master other than the Lord Jesus Christ will use you and discard you. When we come to realize that all serve one master or another and that other masters inevitably abuse or fail us, suddenly we find there is nothing as liberating as being a slave of King Jesus. Paul is showing them how being a slave of Jesus has set them free to accept any outcome in his situation as a prisoner, so long, just as long as Christ gets glory through his response to those circumstances. He writes in verse 20, It is his earnest expectation and hope that in nothing he should be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now also, Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or death. Paul is so captivated by Christ that all he cares about is seeing his Savior exalted. And Paul does something unusual in this letter by addressing this epistle not only to the membership of the church, but also to its leaders. This is the only letter that Paul opens with a greeting to the church's officers, its overseers, and its deacons, its bishops and its deacons. Paul writes nothing randomly. I think we've come to know that by now. And so we ought to be prompted to pay attention here. We can't be sure, but the context suggests that Paul's purpose is to send hints to the congregation and to the leaders themselves in his opening. 
It is as if Paul is reminding the congregation, when you are tempted to dig in and insist on getting your own way, remember that Jesus has placed you in a network of authority and accountability for your own good. You have overseers who are charged to watch out for your well-being and even give an account for your soul and to correct you when you go astray. And you have deacons, servants, who show you how to care for others with the compassion of Jesus, who came not to be served, but to serve. And then to the overseers and deacons, Paul drops the hint, Brothers, as you exercise the authority that Jesus has delegated to you, Remember that like Timothy and me, you are slaves of Jesus Christ. To be leaders in Jesus' kingdom is to be slaves of all, serving those whom you shepherd. Paul directs his opening greetings to the overseers and deacons because they bore accountability for and were the potential solution to the problems within the church. Saints in Christ Jesus. The second phrase that Paul uses as the key to unlock joy while being captivated as Christ's slaves is saints in Christ Jesus. When Paul calls his Philippian brothers and sisters to saints, he evokes a picture of being set apart for privileged access into the very temple of God. We hear the word saints repeatedly these days. We may even use it. But how often do we ponder what it means? We may say about someone who has extraordinary patience, oh, she is a saint. But what does the Bible mean when it uses the term saint? In our English Bibles, the noun saint and the adjective holy are two ways of talking about the same thing. Although saint and holy don't look alike to us in English, they represent the same family of words in the biblical languages. These terms describe the purity that befits the privilege of standing in the presence of God. I'll repeat that. These terms, saint and holy, describe the purity that befits the privilege of standing in the presence of God. <clears throat> when the Lord appeared to Moses at the burning bush, God's presence made the ground under Moses' feet holy requiring that Moses shed his sandals. On the yearly day of atonement, Israel's high priest with elaborate sacrificial and cleansing rituals passed through the holy place, the sanctuary's outer chamber, and into the inner chamber, the most holy place. The Lord himself is supremely holy as the seraphim cry, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, as we read in Isaiah 6. Isaiah trembled to realize that the Lord's holiness, his consuming purity, was lethal to a defiled people. Even the high priest's sons, Nadab and Abihu, were consumed by fire when they treated the regulations pertaining to the sanctuary in a cavalier way. For the Lord said, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. Our popular usage of saint contains a grain of truth. A saint is a special person, set apart by God and granted access to God's holy presence. <clears throat> Yet amazingly, the Bible calls people who are not pure, <coughs> who are not free of defiling sin, the Bible calls these same people holy and saints. 
God called Israel to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Though the Israelites were stiff-necked and prone to wander, still he pitched his tent in the midst of their camp. He had picked Israel out of all the nations and separated them as his own. So they were saints, a people holy unto the Lord. And Paul, here in the opening of this letter, applies the glorious title, Saints, to Lydia and the jailer alike. He applies it to Paul and Timothy. And he applies it to you and me. How could, how could a soiled, sinful people like us stand in his presence, beholding his glory and attend to his wishes. How could a people like us even survive in the presence of such all-consuming purity? The answer lies in Paul's second use of Jesus' name. We are saints in Christ Jesus. And then third use of the Lord's name, grace and peace from the Lord Jesus Christ. The wonder of the gospel is that though we admit with grief we have offended our Creator, the very God whose honor we have violated has come to bear the pain that should be ours. Paul reminded the Christians at Ephesus that Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker and that the price of peace was Christ's death, for He Himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. The peace that Christ secures for us frees us to pay the price of making peace and keeping peace with each other, to put others' needs and interests above our own. And grace and peace belong to those who approach God as Father and who bow the knee to Jesus Christ as Lord. God's grace and peace impart not only forgiveness, but it also transforms the direction and the affection of our hearts. God's grace and the gospel of peace never leaves a man unchanged. To receive grace and peace from the Father and the Lord Jesus is to discover the joy of belonging to the Master who made and redeemed us for Himself. And gratitude. Kelly, so timely this morning was your note that arrived in your email box and reminding the entire congregation of the importance of a thankful heart. From this benedictory greeting, grace and peace to you from the Lord, Paul turns immediately to a profoundly important and telling characteristic found in the Christian life, gratitude. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, he writes, always in every prayer of mine, making making requests for you all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Pay attention to your prayer life. Pay attention in our corporate prayers. How often do we rush 
into presenting our petitions without giving thanks to God for his gracious abundance in our lives. Later in chapter 4 of this letter, Paul will write, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. In Romans 1, as Paul explains God's wrath on the unrighteous, he teaches them that they are without excuse because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. An ungrateful heart is a heart that does not know God. But Paul is filled with thanksgiving. Every time he thought of the Philippians, he gave thanks to God. He prayed for them regularly, and he brought his petitions before God with joy. He was joyful and thankful for their fellowship in the gospel. From those first encounters with Lydia... And the Philippian jailer, even up to the moment he was writing this letter. Paul was well aware of the challenges in the church, but his heart, his heart was filled with thanksgiving. And with these words of gratitude, Paul throws his arms wide to gather in each and every one of his spiritual children there at Philippi to pull together brothers and sisters who may have drifted apart through misunderstanding or, or differing priorities. In effect, Paul's phrase, making requests for you all with joy, throws one arm around Euodia and the other around Syntyche, and drawing them face to face, he calls them to see eye to eye once again. Paul is able to pray this way because of his utter and complete confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. And that brings us to the final point, gospel confidence. Obviously, Paul's joy is not based on his own circumstances. He's not writing from the comfort of a study on a country estate. Just a few words after his first mention of joy in verse 4, he will mention his chains, bringing into view the captivity and threat to his life that he is suffering. Nor is Paul merely putting a happy face on a bleak situation in order to keep morale up among the troops. Paul's basis for joy is that both he and his partners in grace are loved by an almighty, all-wise, all-faithful God. And Paul's joy is utterly realistic because it is grounded in God's promise and God's word. God has complete gospel confidence. Paul explains his gospel confidence this way, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Having recalled their entrance into the gospel on that first day when Paul and Silas arrived in Philippi, he then ponders their consistency in the fellowship of the gospel, both as glad beneficiaries of God's grace and as grateful investors in its advance until now. Yet, the source of Paul's confidence and joy goes deeper than the Philippians' record of reliability. As Paul looks from the present to the future, his confidence rests in the truth that he who began a good work in you on that first day, a dozen years ago, down by the river, in the jail, will bring it to completion at the last day of Jesus Christ. Paul knows full well, and the Philippians must remember it too, 
that the only reason that they have been partners in the gospel from that first day until now is that God began a good work in them and that God has sustained that work and is sustaining that work even until that day. Because the sovereign, preserving work of the invincible, omnipotent God is the source of the Philippians' faith and Paul's faith, Paul can be confident that God, the master builder, will carry on his construction project until he has finished the job. And the point of completion in this building project is the day of Jesus Christ. When the Father sends his Son, the Messiah Jesus, back to earth in his resurrection power, transforming our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Philippians 3.21 What specifically is the work that will be completed with Jesus returns in glory? It is the Holy Spirit's project of turning stone-dead people into living replicas of Jesus, the radiance of the Father's glory. The Apostle John promises, Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know. We know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. The Holy Spirit begins with people who are part of a crooked and perverse generation, opposed to God's authority and holiness. And in, their fallen, in the fallenness of their hearts, they place themselves above the Creator. We are spiritually dead by nature, unwilling and unable <clears throat> to undo the inward bent of our hearts. Like that valley of dry bones in the prophet Ezekiel's vision. But through the gospel, the Spirit of Christ breathes life into dead souls. He then begins a lifelong process of new creation, replacing hearts of hard, cold stone with warm and tender hearts of flesh, as we read from Ezekiel 36. From our new birth in Christ to the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit throughout our lives, Unto our death and the resurrection in our glorified bodies, every single bit of it, it is all the work of God which he accomplishes for his own glory. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is our gospel confidence. If any part of God's salvation were dependent upon me or you, we would surely fall short. Even a tiny part, we would fall short. No confidence can be found there. Our confidence is in the gift and work of the triune God alone. And therefore we know this. With unwavering certainty that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our good and gracious Father, we give you our abundant thanks for your word and for the hope of the gospel. We thank you that we may even now share in Paul's confidence that as you have begun a good work in us, you will surely complete it until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
For all your promises in Him are yes, and in Him, amen, to the glory of God. O Lord, take this word, and whatever is true and helpful, we pray that your Holy Spirit would apply it to our lives and fit us for more effective service to you and to your church. And this we ask for the glory of our God, for the beauty of the gospel, and for the advancement of your kingdom, as we pray in the mighty name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.